0: Freeway Exit is a podcast from KPBS Public Media about the past, present, and future of San Diego's freeways. Learn the forgotten history of the San Diegans who built our freeway network and the activists who fought against them. Freeway Exit explores exciting and radical solutions for building a more sustainable and equitable San Diego. Listen and follow Freeway Exit from KPBS wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Scott Lewis. I'm the editor-in-chief at Voice of San Diego and the host of Good Schools for All. If you're interested in sponsoring one of our podcasts and associating your company's name or message with the great shows we produce, please let us know. Contact Aaron Zlotnick at aaron at voiceofsandiego.org. That's E-R-I-N at voiceofsandiego.org. This podcast is brought to you by Altus Schools. Altus Schools are free Highly acclaimed public schools that specialize in delivering one-on-one instruction to students throughout your community. Students receive their own customized education plan to move them forward towards success. To learn more, visit altus4u.com. That's A-L-T-U-S, the number four, the letter U.com. dot com. Or call 858-678-2020. That's 858-678-2020. Altus Schools, a custom pathway to success for students.
1: mom says my neighborhood school isn't good enough. How am I
2: supposed to know my kids are getting the best education possible?
0: Welcome to Good Schools for All, a podcast from the investigative news organization Voice of San Diego and the Education Synergy Alliance.
3: We cut through the jargon and polarized debate to get you the news and ideas that matter. Good schools are at the heart of our democracy and economy, and we're about good schools for all kids.
0: We hope you'll learn and maybe teach us something.
3: It should be an excellent
2: school in every community.
0: Enjoy the show.
2: But here's the sad reality. In the past 28 years, the need and demand for these other options have grown unabated. I share President-elect Trump's view that it's time to shift the debate from what the system thinks is best for kids to what moms and dads want, expect, and deserve. Parents no longer believe that a one-size-fits-all model of learning meets the needs of, need of every child. And they know other options exist, whether magnet, virtual, charter, home, faith-based, or any other combination. Yet too many parents are denied access to the full range of options, choices that many of us here in this room have exercised for our own children.
0: So my name is Scott Lewis. I'm uh, Editor-in-Chief at Voice San Diego.
2: I'm Laura Cohn.
0: And that voice you heard was the nominee for Education Secretary for the United States Of America's new administration, Mm -hmm. federal government and administration of Donald Trump, president. Still interesting to say. So uh, Betsy DeVos has made her way now through the committee at uh, the Senate. Uh, It's unclear whether she'll get a full approval from the Senate as we record this. But that was her main plank. That that's basically her main theme, right?
2: That that, yeah, that
3: that's what that's been her engagement with public education or with education generally, um, and the basis for her nomination for the for the Secretary of Education position.
0: We got a lot of requests from people to sort of break down what we as San Diego people who care about education should think about this uh, and what what we could understand about what she's p- pushing. So. We're going to do our part today, and uh, we also have a guest that's coming in later to talk about our own type of choice, which is mainly revolved around uh, charter schools, and of course there is some neighborhood choice that goes on in in traditional public schools, but Miles Durfee from the California Charter Schools Association joins us later. But let's get into a little bit about uh, Betsy DeVos and and that whole issue of choice. So what she's basically saying is that, uh, you know, this traditional public school doesn't work for a lot of people, and that it's uh, it's a kind of a common refrain among education activists on her side of things that you have to provide as many options as possible or new options or innovative options that uh, might fill the gap better than sort of the traditional school model, right?
3: that's That's the major perspective, um that emphasis on parent choice, which is sort of a mom and apple pie idea on its face. who who would be opposed to parents having? all parents having access to a full range of choices, um, ideally quality choices. That's basis for our podcast as well.
0: Right. And so what she includes in those choices, of course, are private schools and uh, in particular Christian schools she talks about a lot. And so I think what we wanted to start with is just a little bit of perspective. So what we were both impressed with Connor Williams's uh, post in the Washington Post, right? This is Connor Williams' uh, education thinker uh, who works for the New America Foundation. He's been on the show before. And he wrote a piece about how, I'm just gonna read part of it. He says, school choice is just a tool. And Remember, Connor's a pretty solid activist for innovation and choice and stuff like that, right? Absolutely. He says, school choice is just a tool. When choice programs are well-designed, they can give students an option to attend schools outside the neighborhoods where their families can afford to live when they're carefully monitored by the public choice programs, can ensure that these options aren't just options, they're opportunities. So you highlighted that quote too. What did you think he was trying to get across there?
3: The goal is great schools for every kid. And when choices enable families to find choices, to find schools that really serve their kids' needs best, then that's great. But when choices are just... uh, making confusion and, um, and they're just the choices, the end in itself, then you haven't accomplished anything for kids. You haven't accomplished better outcomes for them. So public policy that promotes choice really needs to be about excellence in schools.
0: Right. And so, you know, I, as speaking as somebody, as a parent, I find the choice sometimes <laughs> overwhelming exactly. and in, you're almost always wondering whether you've made the right choice or whether you should make a different one. Uh, I think Williams' follow up was really important though um so he talked about cities that have you know really expanded their por- portfolio of choices for parents and uh, to some extent uh, had a lot of success in Boston and DC and other places he says but critically these cities don't treat the availability of expanded educational options or even racial or socioeconomic diversity as ends rather they incorporate significant public oversight to ensure that these options are high quality that helps their school choice programs support integration and equity alike charter schools in these cities pace the nation when it comes to raising student achievement. So what he's saying is that you can't just have these choices out there. You have to have good public oversight that can make sure that they're achieving, you know, high standards of excellence. And, and so, and I think that was a, that was a really interesting point because that actually came up in DeVos's hearing because she, well, she, she had a really interesting exchange with Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia. We remember Mr. Kaine, of course, ran for vice president on the ticket of Hillary Clinton. And here's what that exchange involved. Now, remember, we're talking about accountability. So if you, it, choices are great. But if you, if you don't actually hold all those choices to the same accountability, well, that could be a problem.
4: And if confirmed, will you insist upon that equal accountability in any K-12 school or educational program that receives federal funding, whether public, public charter, or private?
2: I support accountability.
4: Equal accountability for all schools that receive federal funding?
2: I support accountability.
4: Okay, is that a yes or no?
2: That's a, I support accountability. Do you not want to
4: answer my question?
2: I support accountability. Okay,
4: let me ask you this. I think all schools that receive taxpayer funding should be equally accountable. Do you agree with me or not?
2: Well, they don't. They're not today. But
4: I think they should. Do you agree with me or not?
2: Well, no, because... You don't agree
4: with me. Let me move to my next question.
3: Yeah. I mean, what's so disappointing about that response is that if her main plank, if her main point is that choice is um, what she wants to make sure to expand under her watch at the Department of Education, then... I want her to have a really specific idea about what accountability looks like. What, so how do we know if the new choices that we're offering to families are good choices? And if they're not good choices, if they turn out not to be good choices, what are we going to do about it? Those are really critical questions. And if you don't have good ideas about those and yet choice is your main thing, then that's, that's worrying. Well,
0: it's a really interesting philosophical discussion because at that point, it becomes what is education? I mean, you could get to a position, and we see this a lot with like local charter schools that are like not doing well, or they're weird, or they come from out of left field, and and the school district has the power to revoke their charter, mm-hmm. uh, or the charter schools association, as we're going to talk about with Miles Durfee, they'll come in and say like you shouldn't endorse that charter. That charter is not doing well anymore, right? right? Yes. And so you, if you don't have that equal accountability or some sort of standard of accountability, or or be able to articulate that accountability then you have a situation where somebody could just be running kind of like what those for-profit universities that got in trouble were doing, which was just running a taxpayer-funded thing and just is almost like a diploma mill, just kind of churning kids through some sort of weird process that, that was not at all educational or something. And, and so how do you make sure? But then you get to the point of like everybody agreeing on what those standards are, and so she's not willing to articulate that. That's kind of worrisome.
3: Right. I mean, it's it's a central feature or a central um, idea of the charter movement and of the choice. Well, it should be of the choice movement is that, yeah, you um, release the funds to the charter operators, but you hold them accountable for outcomes. That's right. sort of the It's it's contract based education in a lot of ways. And yet um, what we see 30 years into the charter movement, 25, 30 years into the charter movement is some jurisdiction. some states, some cities do a much better job of holding up that part of the bargain that they're going to hold hold the schools accountable for results than other places do. And kids' educations are on the line,
0: yeah. so that gets I just I find it fascinating. There's a lot of now, you know, talk about well, this is she going to make it through as as we're recording this again, she got through the the panel. Uh, Senators Susan Collins, Collins, though, and Lisa Murkowski, both Republicans, hinted that they're not sure whether they are going to support her in the full Senate. So they're both Republicans. Now, the Democrats on the panel all voted uh, as a block against her. And so if they stayed united, all they would need is three Republicans to join them to reject uh, Betsy DeVos as the education secretary. Here's Murkowski explaining... Her thinking on the issue, she said about DeVos, quote, she may be unaware of what's broken in our public schools and how to fix it, said Murkowski, who said that her state, Alaska, includes many isolated rural communities where vouchers and charter schools are not reasonable solutions to what ails education. And I think uh, on that point about whether she's just sort of got a good grasp of these debates. I want to turn to another exchange she had with Senator Al Franken from Minnesota. And this was about uh, a debate that w- I think we've talked about, about how do you measure schools and student progress or student aptitude, right?
3: Right. If you're going to hold schools accountable for results, then ha- what's your perspective on how to look at results?
0: So let's hear what they said and then break break it down.
1: And I would like your your views on... Uh, the relative advantage of profi- measuring, uh, doing assessments, and using them to measure proficiency or to me- measure growth.
2: Thank you, Senator, for that question. Um, I think, if, if I'm understanding your question correctly, around proficiency, I would I would also um, correlate it to competency and mastery, so that you each student is measured according to the um, advancement that they're making in each subject area.
1: Well, that's growth that's not proficiency. So in other words the growth they're making is in growth. The proficiency is if an arbitrary reached, if standard. If they've
2: reached a level, the proficiency is if they've reached a, a like third grade level for reading, etc. No, I'm talking
1: you? about the debate between proficiency and growth. Yes. And what what your thoughts are on them.
2: Well, I was just asking to clarify then.
1: Well, this is this is a subject that is has been debated in the education community for years. But it surprises me that you don't know this issue.
0: All right. So I think there was a little miscommunication there. Not necessarily... Obviously, she didn't have a good grasp of what he was talking about. But I do think it's a little... It's not quite as stark as some people said. But let's understand. Mm-hmm. Is, talk to me about that debate. Is it really a big debate that's been had over the years about whether which one you should use? It seems like it's not necessarily a debate it's that there's two measurements and we sometimes slalom between them right
3: right yeah i don't know if i'd call it exactly a debate either but i would say that no child left behind really tar- pushed us all towards the proficiency idea so um all we the goal was to get 100% of kids to what was defined as the appropriate level for their grade and um, and so wh- for
0: years, we would look at these school performance things and it would be, well, 30% are proficient at this certain third grade or eighth grade level and 70% aren't. And so we would say, and another school has 60% proficient and 40% not.
3: And what that loses track of is some schools that may be really improving, sometimes improving rapidly, but because but they might be moving kids from um, performing really poorly to performing less poorly. And that actually is a great accomplishment. So that's growth. But we weren't able to credit them at all under the under the old system. And so there's a really healthy conversation that emerged over the last five years um, about making sure that accountability systems moving forward um, take growth into account. And in fact, our State Board of Education just delayed the release of California's new accountability system in order to incorporate and elevate growth measurements in the new accountability system. When is that coming? It's coming in March, so coming up in the next few weeks,
0: all right. So th- there's also a not that's school-based proficiency versus school-based growth, but there's also a big push to do more analysis of actual children. And students and how they progress individually, right? What's that called? Vertical, uh, where you check one kid and, and it's growth? <laughs> uh,
3: longitudinal. There you, you think go. longitudinal. Yeah. yeah. So looking at um, kids over time and, and an individual right. student and, and how they grow year to year. Um, and so not just, same thing. Yeah. Same idea as we're talking about at the school level, but but it pertains also for for a student.
0: It's funny we wonder how people aren't better informed on things like educational stuff but when we have jargon like longitudinal yeah, yeah. <laughs> and proficiency and growth it's tough so um But
3: here's the thing actually there's a little bit of risk in the in this um debate, I guess, than this conversation. So if you're a kid who's underperforming and you make um, the same amount of growth as a a kid who is already at what we would consider grade level, then you're still behind grade level the next year that comes along. So what we um, aspire to for our kids who are low performing is actually accelerated growth. We want them to grow faster um, than other kids so that they can catch up and thrive later on. So we have to make sure not to lose track of that. So.
0: Well, talk to me for a second, and we're going to talk to uh, Miles Durfee about this as well. But talk to me for a second about what the, what uh, education secretary can and can't do. Uh, As my, as I understand it, they have some role over federal funds, obviously, and they have some role over accountabilities and grants and stuff like that, but also not a lot.
3: Yeah. I mean, the, the federal department of education has a big bully pulpit for one thing. Um, So... The point of view that they hold and some of the grant funding that they release um, can affect the overall debate about or the overall conversation and trajectory of of how we're thinking about and working on improving public schools. But it's a small percent of the total funding that goes into schools and uh, there's a very strong and historical deferment. Uh, deferral deference. to the states. Deference. There it is. Deference to the states on um, public education. And within our own state, there's a lot of deference from the state level down to localities. So not, uh, you know, so f- for us here in California, for us here in San Diego, I don't expect DeVos's appointment to actually have much of an impact at all on our schools. Let me
0: just clarify. There's been a lot of talk Well, she could destroy public education. Could she?
3: I I just don't see it because public education, the vast majority of the funding comes from the state, the vast majority of the regulations, for example, on teacher preparation, teacher certification, teacher qualifications, standards and accountability, testing, um, common core standards, for example, which there are some, um, there's some opposition to them from some quarters, not so much in California, but they're not federal standards. She cannot cease Common Core standards all of a sudden, so California is committed to them, and um, I have full expectation that we'll move forward.
0: And we had um, a member of the Board of Education of California on an earlier show talking about how they're the ones that analyze and decide those standards and such, right?
3: Yeah. So people I respect are really anxious and upset about DeVos's appointment, but for me personally, there's some other appointments that our new president <laughs> has made that I'm much more um, I'm, I'm much more concerned about.
0: Let me ask about the what it could hap- what could happen to the debate i think one of the things that connor williams and others have brought up is that for progressive reformers of education there is some concern that it will ha- harm the the conversation that you'll be lumped if you do support choice in any form you're going to be lumped in with this divisive mm-hmm. rhetoric sometimes that comes out of uh, of of this campaign now, and now the, that administration, what do you think about that? You've been watching this debate for some time. This discussion, how do you think it'll it'll survive or not?
3: Yeah, I do. I I do think that is a risk. That um, there's an organization that I've been involved with in the past called Democrats for Education Reform, um, and they're not very active right now. But there used to be a bipartisanship to the idea of, um, school choice to the idea of accountability. And, um, I do think that it's, it is, I I can foresee that there will be some polarization along political lines and that's happening in other areas of, of public policy as well as the Trump administration rolls forward.
2: Keep
0: your head up, Laura. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's move on to, let's uh, keep our head up with uh, what's working.
3: So for what's working, I want to um, point out a great school of choice that is a district school. It's actually in the Poway School District. It's called the Design 39 School. And the Design 39 School is in its third school year. It has um, 1,150 students and a very long wait list. Parents are really excited about this school. And the basis of it is um, that uh, it's student-centered, we say, so students... um, their own progress is what they're measured against. Grade levels are de-emphasized there. There's a lot of project-based learning. They use design thinking, it's called, um, as um, one of their themes. And um, it's just super that a school district allowed teachers to design the school, roll it out, and that there's enormous demand from the public for it.
0: All right. And our number of the week...
3: For our number of the week, I looked at um, virtual and charter schools in San Diego County. I've been really interested in um, the role that they play in our charter sector here in San Diego County. And Voice of San Diego has done some good reporting related to that um, and the graduation rates in San Diego Unified, et cetera. And it turns out there are 36 out of our total 122 charter schools in San Diego County that are virtual. That's 30% of the total number of charter schools in San Diego County. Which seemed like a lot to me, so I looked up in Los Angeles County, and they have 27 virtual or online charters out of 370, so that's only seven percent of their total charters. So it it begs the question of what's going on here in San Diego. Some online charters are credit recovery oriented; they're for for kids who would um, who may be inclined to drop out of regular public school, and so they um these those types of online charters create kind of the credit recovery or the dropout recovery idea some online charters are oriented more towards homeschooling and so san diego county may have a higher prevalence of homeschooling therefore a higher um, number of online charters as a result but it's still interesting and worthy of further investigation that such a huge part of our charter sector is online
0: We are joined in the Great Voice of San Diego podcast studio in downtown San Diego by Miles Durfee. He's the Managing Regional Director for Southern California for the California Charter Schools Association. Welcome, Miles. Thank you. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Thanks for coming down. Uh, So tell us what is the Charter School, uh, the California Charter School Association, and what's your role?
4: Well, the California Charter Schools Association is a professional and membership organization that supports charter schools and tries to move forward the needle in uh, the state on good education and improving quality of education through uh, high quality charter schools.
0: Okay. We obviously talk at some length about charters here and there, but give us a background. what What is a charter school and why, uh, you know, what's the role it plays in the marketplace of local education, public education?
4: Well, you know, uh, it's a charter schools are public schools that allow for a little bit of flexibility with the education code. When they were first originated, there was a thought that uh, innovation and best practices could be shared with school districts that had, uh, you know, the, the education code is a very large volume of books and laws. And when you overlap that with all of the other compliance issues that school districts have, it's hard for them sometimes to be innovative and move quickly and make things happen to change public education in positive ways. And so, that was really the what a charter school was designed to do is to challenge those. Whether it was just putting in instructional minutes that were longer, or it was innovative uh, project-based learning, for example, different learning strategies, whatever would work to try to make sure that students had the best choices and had uh, innovative thought in how things would move forward educationally.
0: When you look long term, as far as your long term goals, uh, the future, perfect future, for example. Would that perfect future be where everyone's a charter school, or would it be where the lessons from charter schools, the best practices, the innovations, as you call them, scale out to traditional
4: schools? Well, I think that's a great question. I I think we see a lot of different models around the United States on that. I think that from our picture, we believe that good education is something that's going to evolve over time, and so we don't know what that future looks like completely right now. Mm -hmm. We we know that charter schools are important in that landscape, and we know they are from a perspective of pushing against the system and hopefully sharing those best practices. We don't know how that outcome is going to look in the future. We we know that local um, boards, charter school boards, that are allowed to have more independent control over what they do is uh, something that parents like, and we know that they're succeeding academically in a lot of environments, and so that's what we see.
3: How does California compare to other states nationally and how um, how our charter sector is supported and held accountable relative to other states.
4: Yeah, you know, I think it's important to to recognize that when charter schools were started in California, they really started as an anti voucher movement, and mm. they were started with the idea of the AFT um, national president at the time, and Gary Hart. and And so, if you look at that landscape and you put the lens on it, you know, California charter schools have always been in an environment where they have been able to be innovative, but the thought process was they would be a part of the public education system and they would be an intimate part of really working with school districts in partnership.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: And so that's what you see today. Do you see the legacy of that original planning or do you think it's evolved away from that original concept?
4: Well, I I think that we are seen uh, often in in public education. And I used to work at San Diego Unified School District uh, for a number of years. We see People focused on adult issues and money, and and so as we evolve away from kind of the idealism of what charter schools and school district partnerships look like, I see us sometimes get involved in fighting over things that we have seen in the public education system forever, which is people issues, adult issues, not what's good for kids. And so that I I think it is evolving away, and I think that it should, uh, you know, we need to continue to work together locally to make that happen.
0: Well. We brought you in because there's now a uh, high pitched, uh, intense national conversation about school choice, um, particularly around the, the election of President uh, Donald Trump and then his education secretary nominee and uh, Betsy DeVos. And so the the question, I think at, at heart is is you know, first of all, we should probably understand what the federal relationship is to um, to local school districts? Like what can uh, Betsy DeVos do? And what, what do we need to keep in mind as we, as, we, um, as we watch those things happen? Do you have a good idea?
4: Yeah, well, I think it's important. You, you know, that's a great question too. I think what we see is that the federal government and the Secretary of Education play a very pivotal role in what happens as a uh, bully pulpit and a trumpeter of cause for public education. Um, but, you know, we really focus on what's happening locally and what's happening in the state. And so I think Betsy DeVos, for instance, become a lightning rod right now for a battle that is happening in every local school district that I'm aware of about choice and about uh, anti-charter, pro-charter. And, and all of those things are a little bit reminiscent of what we're seeing nationally right now, which is dividing people. And, and I'm hopeful uh, the, you know, my job is to you know, not divide people and try to bring people together. And it's a difficult place for us to try to get to as a society, but I'm hopeful that we're actually headed that direction. And so when we talk about the federal role of education. There is a role, but the, when you look at the budget dollars that come in from the federal government for for education, uh, compared to what state the state provides, it's very insignificant for school districts. And it's it's also very small from portion for what charter schools see. Mm-hmm.
3: They they play an important role, don't they, in um, supporting charter startups. The federal government does. I mean, how, what proportion of uh, new charters here in our region get some federal support for the startup phase?
4: Yeah, so there is a program called the, the Public Schools uh, Charter School Startup Grant. I uh, the name's not exactly that, yeah. but it's a startup grant that the federal government. Uh, it was an application process that the state applied for over the number of years and was uh, approved for. That The that, state applies for it, the not sti- the charter yeah. school? Yeah, the okay. California Department of Ed applies for it, and the California Department okay. of Ed then administers that grant program. Hmm. Um, CCSA was successful, Charter Schools Association was successful last year at making that, uh, also getting state dollars to fund that startup f- part. and the, And so that is a, a grant program that we support a great deal. We would like to see that continue to be funded at a federal level. Um, but we would also seek that from the California state government as well.
0: It seems like the cleave is, uh, you know, about not just the, the the idea of choice, but also this difference between what a charter school is and then what this other idea is about vouchers, right? About being able to, be, the very vague concept uh, for me is that you are Given whatever money might come from the state, um, and you can take that uh, to whatever school you want, and that could often be a private or for-profit or religious school, and that's a concept of a voucher, and that's uh, that's not necessarily what uh, charter schools are, or that's a
4: different uh, that's a whole different angle, right? That's
0: not something you advocate.
4: Yeah, charter, charter schools are not vouchers, uh-huh. and and vouchers is a very different process, and and we. Uh, CCSA and Charter School Association, we've come out and really talked about um, in California, You know, we don't see a need for the voucher system right now. Mm -hmm. There there are places maybe in the nation where that discussion is a great place to have that, where there are places where students have no choice. Right now in California, we have a system that's well-developed. It's almost 25 years now in the process, and it's been developed from a perspective of allowing students to have choice, and while we don't think that system is perfect, we see that system You know, fund it. We have 5.6 million students that are in schools. I think in California, in public schools, and you know, we have good portion of those folks are are in 50,000, 60,000. I'm sorry, 500,000, 600,000 are in charter schools.
0: Let me ask you: Isn't the, isn't it a kind of a de facto voucher for the public system that your the the money that goes to fund that student's education? transfers to a charter school, if that student chooses a charter school, it's just that they can't take that money to other sort of unincorporated or, or different private schools.
4: So I, I think what you're asking is, does the money follow the student? Right. And, and the answer is the money follows the student. And But the difference is that the money stays within the public education system. Mm-hmm. And, and these charter schools are nonprofit for the most Uh, In California, there are very few for-profit charter schools. There are only a few. And we think that those numbers will continue to drop or legislation will pass that will stop those charter schools, uh, for-profit charter schools.
3: I just want to add in that uh, charter schools, public charter schools, are accountable to public entities, especially in California. That's right. And so, so... The charter is held by usually the school district or the county board of education, um, which has an elected body that, you know, we all vote for uh, the folks on that body. And so the the charter has to perform or the charter is not renewed. And that's a that's to me the crucial difference between um, money following the student to a public charter school and money following the student to. Um, a private school that has no such public accountability attached
0: to Do it. Do voucher ideas have some sort of oversight, sometimes, uh, component or standards component?
3: Not, not much to my knowledge. I'm not aware of.
0: I'm not aware of that. No, so the voucher idea would be just literally give them the money right. that would go to them as a public education, and then. Right. The oh, adherence the to vouchers
3: would, would, I think they would say that it's the accountability comes from the family and the family's decision to, uh, th- you know, using their best judgment about where their kid will best be served.
0: Okay. And uh, my understanding is also there, there's laws in place that would prevent the voucher um, system from really taking off here. That, w- that laws would have to change. Betsy DeVos couldn't just say like, all right, now your vouchers.
4: You know, I, I think we are seeing that California is very uh, progressive on some of these issues, and I I don't think that the state legislature at this point is uh, poised to do that. <laughs> no. <laughs> the, ask- the voters
3: have rejected vouchers twice, yeah. so yeah.
0: This this canard always comes up about charter schools, about it being a privatization of of school districts or school resources. So let's really uh, boil that down, because I think it's, it's worth just wait, raising awareness about it. So you said, yeah, there's not a lot of for profit, and and you think those are dwindling. Are there? There are, though, for profit management teams within various nonprofit charter schools. Is that
4: correct? So, the way that I boil this down for people when we talk about privatization is, school districts, uh, again, they work with private organizations and for profit organizations. For example, um, publishers are for profits, right? Pri- yeah. And, right, yeah. it, and and public charter schools also work with private organizations that are for profit. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also work with nonprofit organizations. They're, uh, you know, to my knowledge, people are uh, most charter organizations are nonprofit entities, even in their management and networks, uh, and they're not for profit, mm-hmm. uh, for except for the small portion that we're talking about, where there's a for profit. Uh, there there are for profits, and and again, there's very few. Mm-hmm. I think there were like five or seven. Organizations in California. The last time we checked. Mm. So,
3: Miles, what, exactly, I actually don't understand it. Exa- what is the accusation that charters equal privatization? Where, do, what's the th- can, the theory that people are holding when they lump charters into this under this privatization umbrella?
4: Well, you know, there are a number of myths about charter schools that we continue to work to. Um, provide accurate information. You know, we are now coining a new term in our society called alternative facts. And privatization is one of those words that I think really is an alternative fact. And it's, you know, these are nonprofit organizations. I think that what people see is a lot of uh, foundations and people who are successful business people who have provided philanthropic funding to organizations because primarily they believe that education can do better in our society. And... And those people then are uh, chastised as trying to stop and privatize uh, and make it the Walmart or the Coca-Cola charter school. And, and that's not what's happening. What's happening is nonprofit organizations and people with charter boards are running those organizations. And if you were going to go ask one of the charter schools in our town, uh, you know, when was the last time that you got money from Walmart? Uh, they would say, I never did. Mm-hmm. And I'm not privatized. I'm a public institution that... Uh, is authorized, like you said, by San Diego Unified or Vista Unified or Chula Vista Elementary School District, mm-hmm. and so that's that's a myth. And it's a, but it sounds good, and so people continue to use it.
3: I think I mean my experience is that people truly believe it. So it, you know, it's important to talk about it. Um, I want to talk to you about the accountability thing. So one of the things that I've um, appreciated about the California Charter Schools Association is that you're also um, monitoring the charter school. Uh, sector in California, and sometimes calling out charter schools that you think deserve not to have their charters removed um, so I mean renewed, renewed sorry uh so is it i I like it that you're doing that, but I just wonder if the public it, the school boards that have originally authorized these charters if um they need help to do to fulfill their responsibilities uh, for accountability for charters.
4: Yeah, we, we believe really strongly that we should be moving the needle on schools that, we, uh, that aren't succeeding. And if they're charter schools, they shouldn't be open. And if they're traditional public schools, they should also look for alternative models that would allow them to thrive and let those students thrive. And do they need help? The answer is the hardest thing that I've ever seen boards of education do is close any school. Mm-hmm. And we have great evidence of that in most school districts where They know they have a problem and they can't fix it and they can't close that school because there's always a public, you know, is aware that it might change their lives and they're not sure how. And so there's a lot of unknowns when you close a traditional public school. Same thing can be said for a charter school. And so, you know, I'm actually in the process of working with Vista Unified uh, and trying to reach out to the superintendent and uh, and the board and let them know that we unfortunately had to make the decision that we wouldn't support the renewal of a charter school in Vista Unified and And I will say that you know they uh, the phones aren't lighting up on the return calls with me right now. and uh, I'm gonna have to go out there and make that public and really explain to them the really difficult process and the lengthy process that we go through to try to see if there's any way that the leadership at the school can share how they're succeeding with students, whether, you know, Because, again, just to digress on that, the, if you look at state testing, right, we know that there are flaws from a perspective of uh, whether it's growth or proficiency mm-hmm. model. And when you aggregate students, you can't necessarily make a judgment about whether the school is succeeding with those students and whether they're growing. So if they came to the school at a low level and... Tested poorly on the state testing system. That doesn't mean the school didn't do phenomenal things with those students. Mm -hmm. So part of our process is to go in and really work with the schools and see what data they're using and how they're making informed decisions and whether they're meeting their mission. And, you know, if it's a career tech-type model and are they putting...
3: Which it is in Vista. Right. Mm -hmm. Are they
4: putting those students in those places? You're saying the the district won't call you back on that? You know, they're not. They're not responding right now. Why
0: wouldn't they? It seems like they would be
4: interested in that. I, you know, I think that it's a tough decision because they've developed relationships with different organizations over a long period of time. And what
0: school are we talking about? You obviously know.
4: It, it's a, a, the school's North County Trade Tech.
0: Okay. What happened?
4: Again, we go through a very lengthy process with uh, all the schools that are under, are up for renewal. Uh-huh. And we have a data team that does that. And they go out and meet with these schools and try to understand how they're moving their mission. And in this case, we unfortunately found. I mean, I, I this is the hardest thing that I do yeah. is go advocate for closure. I did this out in, uh, you know, out north in uh, for a school, uh, and you know, it's tear jerking because it's hard for. There may be one student, one parent that this school saved their life, but that student and parent could have gone to another school and may have had even a better experience, and that's what they don't see. So the idea
0: being that you. In order to protect the, I don't want to use the word brand, but the the idea of this model and the potential of this model, you have to self-police and you have to work really hard to make sure that the standards are as high as possible is what you're saying. Right. So one of the things that always comes up with discussions of this sort of stuff too is a lot of the successful charter schools, they'll be written off by saying, well, uh, they get to they get the parents who are most active. They get the parents who are most concerned, and even if it's a lottery, even if it's as as <laughs> equitable as possible, that's a terrible word there. But if it's as equitable as possible, the lottery and all that, that there's still the fact that that parent cared enough about their child to seek out the best possible experience and that that parent's going to be more involved and that that experience at the charter school is going to be better and so even the best po- uh, charter school performance is is uh, sort of biased because of that it's tweaked because of that is is more positively tweaked because of that what what do you say to that and and does that mean that eventually in order for the, the model to really prove out you'd have to scale it out almost universally
4: yeah, so that's a much more complicated myth. Yeah, and and it's one that we, we hear daily mm-hmm. is you know either the parents, you know, charter schools are selective in who they put forward and who they take in, and and the answer is that uh, we work very hard with the schools to ensure that they meet their goal, which is to to enroll all students. We see that most uh, most charter schools do that. Almost all that I know do. And when you talk about parents and choosing the there are a number of charter schools in, in San Diego Unified is a great example uh, where the, the neighborhood still goes to the school. Uh, mm-hmm. Those parents aren't choosing there. And, and actually we had a great uh, opportunity with uh, former Senator um, Marty blocks, chief of staff, and we were out at Gompers and uh, the chief of staff said, uh, asked a question of the students that were standing. There were five of them from their student council. And they said, well, you know, your parents are more engaged. So you know, aren't just succeeding because you're at Gompers because your parents chose you to be here. And, And they went through those five stories and one of those students, their parent was very engaged. The other four students told these stories and we were in tears because of the situations that they were in. Some of them clearly had parents that were in the penal system or in, you know, in jail and they were um, coming up from there to go to Gompers. Some of them had, uh, you know, one of the students said, you know, I've never seen, uh, you know, I don't get to see my mom or dad. Very often they work nights and, my grandparents are around, uh, you know, they're not able to be involved, I don't see them. I come to Gompers and that's my family, mm-hmm. you know. So those are the stories that you hear and, and we can talk about, uh, we can always improve and we can always make a better case that we should, that no student should be denied. But as you said, the only way to do that is to challenge, when you have 600 people on your waiting list in a particular grade and, and you can't let them all in, you have to choose. And you do that with a random lottery, that's the requirement of the law. Uh, so I guess the way we test whether we're letting all students in is by allowing expansion, like you said, and then the waiting list would go down and we would be able to say anybody that doesn't get in uh, didn't, didn't get, uh, was selected out. Yeah, but so- the
3: district people, what they worry about is the, uh, I mean the way they frame it is the kids who are left behind. So they, uh, you know, they lament. That part of the struggles of some of their regular district schools that are near popular charter schools are because the kids who are attending the regular district school are the kids who, you know, just to pursue this a little farther, whose parents didn't know about the charters or couldn't figure out the system to get into the charters, something along those lines. Um, so what's your thinking about that? I hear it from superintendents all the time.
4: Sure. And and so do, so do we. And I also hear from the charter school leaders who tell me that all of the difficult students are being essentially, they call it, you know, dumped on Mm. them, um, that when they fail at, or when they're not a problem at the traditional public school that they are told, Hey, you know, there's a charter school down the street. Um, or if there's a special ed case, that's difficult. They're told, Hey, you know, uh, you should try this school because it's a phenomenal special ed program and happens to be a charter school. Uh, so those are the things we hear on the other side of that. I think that, um, you know that goes back to how do we inform the public about uh, the process and and make sure that those are not happening we We look at the demographics um, on an aggregated basis and and so we see the populations of socioeconomically disadvantaged and how many are in charter schools and whether that's in line with what san diego unified socioeconomically disadvantaged population is and we and what we've traditionally seen you know across the board, which doesn't ever. Talk about one specific situation, right? Is that they they match mm-hmm. par- fairly closely, and in some areas, charter schools are actually serving populations that are more what what traditionally would have been considered more difficult to serve populations.
0: Yeah. Let me ask you. So, you know, make it more personal. So, we tried to get our son into High Tech um, High, or the uh, High Tech High Elementary, and um, and we tried two years, didn't work. Um, Which is fine, except that it was maddening in a way that there's like thousands of people waiting. I remember that line was wrapped around the building for that orientation. And it's like, why can't, if there's so many people who want this type of educational experience, the project-based learning in particular, why can't it scale out to accommodate them? Like, what is stopping that? You mean specifically for like a high-tech high? Yeah, why, why isn't it, if there's that much demand... For that type of educational style and that type of leadership and that type of, you know, everything that's going on, what is in the way of that demand being accommodated? Yeah, I
4: think there, there are a number of barriers for charter schools and for schools in general. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first one I'll say is the, you know, right now the authorizing environment in, in the state and specifically in San Diego, what we're talking about is, is really difficult to start a charter school is a two-year process and you have to be ready to be called all kinds of names and have your whole life background searched uh, to make sure that you've never done anything in your life that, you know, we could pull out. And, you know, and that's why we see like last week, the first charter school in 13 since 2003 that was approved on appeal by the San Diego County Board of Ed. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm. You know, and when you look at the schools trying more fail, then many many more fail than succeed at getting through the authorization process so that's the first barrier so but high tech High
0: can get seems like get whatever it wanted in town so i mean so obviously there's there's financial and structural reasons why that itself couldn't expand but also the next part of the question, though, is why couldn't that style or whatever that what the, what they do there scale out more faster?
4: Yeah, and, and I think we are seeing project-based learning scale out since High Tech High has yeah. been in, in. It's historically right, and and I and I'm proud of that fact. Not not saying that High Tech High is the one that brought that scale out, but I mean I think we're seeing that throughout the yeah the whole public education system and even into the private education system. They're using project-based learning a lot more. Um, but what I would say there's there's other structural problems right one is facilities um, and there's a you know it's a traditional barrier for charter schools to either find traditional public schools sites where they can locate or privately leased or buy their sites that's a, a huge problem the other piece is the instructional piece which is the leadership and the and the the ability to train new leaders for charter schools is uh, a barrier that we continue to work on and find ways to fund because there aren't always great options for that. High Tech High has their own leadership program as a result of that and, mm-hmm. and other folks are doing that. So those are two other structural ones that I think we're really working. The third one is funding, right? You're Essentially when you ask someone, hey, go start a charter school, um, you say, okay, by the way, you, you don't get any money. You need to do this full-time plus and you won't see any money maybe for two years even if you get approved because the state is not a great spectacular forward funding organization. <laughs> they, they delay funding. So that's where the startup grants come in, right? And that's why the startup grants are important, but they're not—they're not enough. They—they do a great job of incentivizing people and maybe making people do that, but people end up, you know, mortgaging their homes and uh, using their their personal savings to start charter schools because of the passion they have for that.
3: So I'm really interested in this question Scott asked, though. So those are really, you did a good job of explaining the barriers to charter expansion, but this, you know, why don't the charter practices that are so in demand by parents bleed out to regular public schools? And so one factor that I think of is um, staffing. So high-tech high um, can recruit and um, retain when they're pleased with the performance or not retain teachers who are really good at delivering project-based education for your local public school to try to be high tech high, it would require teachers who've been, um, who have a predilection for more traditional teaching and have been trained that way to convert to that new style of teaching. And if they're, you know, if they're not comfortable with it, it's difficult to sh- to change over a whole faculty to a pretty radically different approach to teaching and learning. Um, I, th- I feel like that's one of the main barriers to chart the um, charter practices that do seem to. Shine barrier to them extending out to regular public schools. Yeah, I, I think
4: that's right. I, I think the the ability to train is is a big barrier to implement these systems. Uh, you're seeing that with the Common Core, how common, common Core has been implemented in the state, and how school districts are trying to go to Common Core and how long that's taking to get there. Um, we're lucky to have the county office of Ed staff and and their commitment to training all school districts and charter schools, uh, mm-hmm. which has been a really helpful and successful on these issues. But I but I think what we see is that uh, charter school leaders feel like they need to train their own staff and they need to train them in those instructional strategies to try to implement it further. Hmm. Well,
0: so taking a step back to this, the, the governance of the district, and we'll let you go soon, is just the, my question would be like, well, okay, what could we, if you had a magic wand, you could wave a few things and and make some things happen. What would those things be in, say, San Diego Unified School District? Um, You know, as hostile as they can be sometimes to charter schools, they still authorize them. They still, you know, they've set aside money for some, they've built facilities for some. It's not, um, it's for hostility, it's certainly much different than could be as far as hostility goes. So, what kinds of changes might you, you know, promote or or hope happen over the next few years?
4: Well, I think from that authorizing structure, I think that. I really believe, and I think ccsa believes that we really need to start looking at a model that's an alternative authorizer model mm. and and so would the county county boards of eds are and county offices of eds um, work with school districts and and very small school districts uh, so it's very parallel to what charter schools need, which is services of small schools or small districts uh, so we see counties as being hopefully a place where people can have a better and fairer conversation because. Uh, you know San Diego Unified has been a very good partner with charter schools in a lot of ways you, you mentioned a lot of them uh, and so we see that all the time and I think that their political pressure though is they've you know they've got a one hundred and twenty four million dollar deficit that they're trying to fill right now and and it's not related to charter school growth um, you know they have they, they do show a graph that has some enrollment numbers, but you know it, it's not the enrollment growth that's really hurting san diego unified it's it's all the other things mm-hmm. uh, the structural things that they they need to deal with um, and that com- that environment makes it tough for them to make decisions um, that might be in the best interest of charter schools.
0: Let me unpack what you're saying. you're saying that it would be ideal if maybe charters could just work with a, uh, an amenable county office of Education um, as in the same way that small school districts work with that as far as getting services. And getting authorization and even, um, you know, shared technology and stuff like that.
4: That's right. Yeah. I think we see, again, that that the services that you provide to a small school district really well align with what a charter school needs.
0: Do any charters right now just go straight to the county for authorization?
4: Yeah. So the law doesn't allow... It allows you to go through to the county straight uh, for countywide purposes. And, And so that's the only schools that are allowed to go to the county directly. Law is California law? California state law. Yeah.
0: So... Was
4: so that, they
3: have to start at the school district, and then they can appeal to the county. Yeah, I understand yeah, that. Yeah. So
0: that was that part of the the sort of political fight that was going on about the board members of the county office of the county board of education was to not just deal with the appeals, but potentially help shift
4: towards what you're talking about. So I, I think the countywide piece has been in the law for uh, probably its most of its existence, and and it uh, I don't know what the politics was at the time when that was discussed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that that but that's what we see is can you expand that authority that would allow people to go directly to the county or or, you know, and this is why we continue to work with schools to appeal to take their appeal, which is another very expensive and long process is so that they can hopefully get a better and fairer read at the counties. That's fascinating.
0: Um, So so the the fight for the board seats was mostly about the appeals. But but long term, finding legislators and such that would potentially support you know that sort of direct authorization to the county is a priority
4: I, I think I, I don't call it a fight over the board okay. for appeals, but what I would say is that you know the county Office of Ed uh, I see that as a organization that can lead mm-hmm. public education in San Diego County and in other counties and it's a difficult place it's a difficult role to play because they have a lot of uh, superintendents and board members that are constantly trying to shift the county into directions based on their needs, mm-hmm. and and so that's what, in my mind, that's what the the election was about was was trying to get to the county to be in a place where it can be a true reformer and and really look at the decisions that need to be made to direct that. You know, for example, LCAP, uh, the county is now responsible for looking at LCAPs for school districts and and budgets, finance. That's the other responsibility. And some of those decisions need to be really looked at, and they and they often aren't as critically looked at by the county because of the political pressure that they're facing with superintendents and other school boards.
0: There was, um, it will round it out with this. I think there was a there was a lot of columns from supporters of school choice and school reform saying, like, you know, this is unfortunate that the that the sort of cleave the divisiveness of the uh, new incoming administration or the I guess they are the administration. Yeah. You know, of uh, Donald Trump and Betsy DeVos it's, it's just unfortunate that it might set the reform movement back or the school improvement movement whatever you want to call it the by
3: polarizing by y- polarizing the the discussion and the dialogue yeah. yeah so
0: what what could be done to sort of like if if Trump or or Betsy DeVos were to say something to kind of you know ease that what would they say if you wrote a speech for them what would it say
4: you know we always talk about students first, Mm -hmm. and how do we get there? And I think that's the piece that we should be talking about is unity and can we get in a room and talk about real facts and try to get these issues that we simplify with tweets and one-word messages into many words about the complexities of these issues. I mean, the thing that I've learned most about being involved in charter schools and even in the traditional public school system is that it's really easy to say we know this, But when you unpack it and you put it down in detail, it's these are complicated things that Mm -hmm. the public uh, doesn't have the amount of time really to stay focused on. And, and, you know, the reason I do what I do, I I took a break from public education after I worked at San Diego Unified, and I thought that I could be an advocate in education uh, as a private citizen. But, you know, I had another job. Mm -hmm. I had work to do. I couldn't stay on top of all the complexities of the issues. So I had to get back into it to be that advocate because that's the complexity. So I think the best message for the national piece is don't let it get into trite statements about controversy and conflict and try to say, hey, this is tough work and we're going to do it all together Mm -hmm. and we need to do it at the local level. If they could send a message, it would be work at the local level to make these things happen and, and how can we get people in a room to make that happen?
0: Miles Durfee, uh, the managing regional director of the Southern California area for the California Charter Schools Association. Thank you for coming into the studio. Thanks, Miles. Thanks, you guys. I enjoyed talking to Miles. He's uh, seems like he's got a handle on some of these points. A lot to think about, though, as as this debate gets more interesting, huh?
3: Yeah, I love I love uh, having Miles in the California Charter Schools Association really keeping an eye on our charters, not just promoting them, but also keeping an eye on them. So it was great to talk to
0: Miles. All right. So once again, I'm going to remind folks, if you have some feedback on anything we've been talking about or your own ideas or things that uh, you want us to know, you can always call our number, uh, our voice uh, mail at 619-354-1085. That's 619-354-1085. Leave your name and where you're calling from and your issue. And please let us know if you do not want us to play your voicemail on the podcast. Otherwise, let us know and and talk about some of these issues. Have you had trouble making choices about where to go or understanding any issue that's coming up in this federal debate about education? We'd love to hear. And on behalf of Voice of San Diego and uh, Laura. (laughs) Yes, Scott. (laughs) uh, This has been Good Schools for All.